Sam will help them behind the scenes. And I think that there are lots of people in tech who naturally agree that Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee that they want. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, December 13th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer, who has the scoop on a new super PAC launched by friends of AI entrepreneur Sam Altman. And the group is backing Joe Biden's long-shot Democratic primary challenger, Dean Phillips. Does Altman think that Phillips actually has a shot against the president? Teddy has the latest. And later, Eric Gardner swings by with an update on Donald Trump's upcoming 2020 election interference trial. Trump's claim that he has absolute immunity in the case and how prosecutor Jack Smith is trying to play four-dimensional chess with the Supreme Court. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer to talk about, you know, a story that is sort of the perfect encapsulation of his beat at the intersection of Silicon Valley, money and politics. And that is this little scoop you got, Teddy that Sam Altman is quietly funding a new super PAC to boost Dean Phillips, the Minnesota congressman running in the Democratic primary, if there is one, against President Joe Biden. Welcome to the show, Teddy. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. So one thing, Sam himself is not currently funding it, but Sam's people are sort of behind it. I don't know if that makes you feel like this isn't quite the... uh, Scoop of all scoops, but um, 
But but behind the scenes, you know, Sam Altman, um, who is one of the most well-connected people in Silicon Valley, the fact that he's his people are setting this up certainly makes Sam very, very connected to it, even if he is himself is not currently planning on funding it. You've done some really good reporting this whole cycle about big donors promising to pony up, for example, Larry Ellison mm-hmm. for Tim Scott, and then not really sure. coming through later. So it's clear that some of these rich fellas like to put their toes in the water and see what happens before fully, fully committing. Before getting into the chances of, of Dean Phillips becoming the Democratic nominee uh, and, mm-hmm. and how the super PAC might work, Altman has obviously been in the news a ton lately because you know he was pushed out at OpenAI by the board, then rehired. He's certainly in the news, just generally speaking, because of the explosion of interest in artificial intelligence. What are his like personal politics? Because I thought he, you know, he, he's to me at least. I know he's pals with some of these people, but he's never like a Peter Thiel kind of like doomsday bunker libertarian type. I always thought he was just actually right. kind of a liberal. What yeah. what are they? His politics. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think he is um, very, very pro technology. Just, just narrowly, you know, he he's somebody who is a believer that like the Democratic Party needs to be promoting innovation and and mm-hmm. not being kind of reflexively anti progress. You know, he he is a, a Democrat. He is somebody who himself like has toyed with running for governor in 2017, 2018 time period as a Democrat. But you know, he he is. Also, uh, somebody who thinks that Joe Biden is not the best Democratic nominee, not necessarily because of, you know, his politics, but because he thinks Joe Biden is too old. So Sam, over the last two years or so, has sort of been trying to get a Democrat not named uh, Joe Biden to become the Democratic nominee. Like he's talked with people like uh, Kirsten Cinema, you know, the the standard Democratic wish list, Gretchen Whitmer, blah blah blah. Obviously, none of those people did it. Um, and he's left sort of holding the bag with Dean Phillips. And the the guy who ran is the guy who showed up last month or, or six weeks ago on Sam Altman's doorstep in Russian Hill to discuss the future of the Democratic Party and to discuss whether or not Altman would want to put his own millions into the Phillips uh, ju- juggernaut. <laughs> that was six weeks ago. And then Sam Altman's life blew up with everything regarding open AI. And uh, as, as we've discussed in this podcast before, and now Sam Altman, frankly, doesn't really have time to do politics. I do not think that he changed his mind because he changed his mind on Dean Phillips. I think that he is as excited about Dean as he was a couple weeks ago, but life had other plans. So uh, now his people are starting this new group to sort of boost Phillips in the Democratic primary. And I think they'll actually raise a good amount of money because Sam will help them behind the scenes. And I think that there are lots of people in tech who naturally agree that Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee that they want. Just to put it out there, the University of New Hampshire, I think, you know, there's not a lot of great polls of New Hampshire, which is the state where Dean Phillips is planting his flag against Joe Biden. Yeah. But UNH had a poll like three weeks ago, and Biden was at 65%, and Phillips was at 10 Now, look, you're an incumbent mm. president. You don't want to be at 65% in New Hampshire. Right. And the DNC is basically punishing New Hampshire and saying it doesn't count because they violated calendar rules. And the other problem for Phillips, too, is he is a centrist, normie, rich guy, Democrat, white guy from Minnesota. Gelato heir. Gelato, Talenti Gelato, you know, also a scion of the liquor business. But no no real black support to speak of uh, in a party where that matters a lot <laughs> in, yeah. in the primary. You mentioned the money they might be able to raise. One, 
you wrote about this in your piece for Puck. This super PAC is being run by two guys named Matt and Scott Krisiloff, who are tech industry mm-hmm. insiders. These are your words who are close friends with Altman and have advised him on his previous political pursuits, including the California gubernatorial bid he floated in 2017. Uh, You also Mm -hmm. had this amusing line in here that both of them are excited Phillips supporters who have thought deeply about ways to use artificial intelligence in presidential politics. Look, AI in politics is fascinating, of course, but you know, whether it's that 2017 gubernatorial bid in California or just two guys noodling with AI as they play around in a long shot Democratic primary challenge. Uh, Neither of these guys seem like, at least from my perspective here, as the Mm -hmm. curmudgeonly veteran of Washington politics, neither of them seem like the kind of guys to radically shake up a presidential primary and change the game with less than two months to go until New Hampshire. But what do I know? Sure. Who are these guys? <laughs> sure. So, I mean, look, um, these are, are the people who sort of kind of been Sam's political friends for the last couple of years. Um, they're interlinked with him in a number of ways. One of them used to date Sam. Um, Sam has invested in another one of their companies. These are brothers, if, if that wasn't clear, um, the Chrysalofs. And yes, I mean, the, they are about my age and think about or believe that AI could kind of lead to different approaches to presidential campaign spending, mm-hmm. um, whether maybe, you know, things outside of television ads or or field organizing that maybe there's ways to use digital and data in, in different ways. And, that, and that's why they started this group, kind of to be, to be totally frank, right? I mean, they started this group because they believed that there was an opportunity to kind of have a Silicon Valley group with Silicon Valley money and do it the Silicon mm-hmm. Valley way. So here are the Silicon Valley people. Um, there was an existing super PAC that was also trying to get Sam Altman's money called Pass the Torch, set up by Steve Schmidt, sort of a classic big money outside group. And this is sort of the Silicon Valley inflection of it. And of course, you know, my beat is littered with stories of Silicon Valley smart people thinking they can do things in, you know, a different hubristic way. And um, it fails as often as it succeeds. And that's why it's a fun beat to cover. But this is very much the, the tech group. And uh, that's why... You know, the headline of this piece is Silicon Valley makes its anti-Biden move because this is not just like a super PAC that happens to be headquartered in San Francisco. This is the anti-Biden tech group, um, and uh, they will raise some real money. You write that they've raised half million dollars since this group started. Yeah, that was that was, that was in the first six days. Yeah, um, so yeah. sure. But there's going to start. I mean, this piece, this piece is sort of the uh, unintentionally is the... Uh, flashing deposit now sort of <laughs> icon on their screen. So uh, anybody who wants to make a Dean Phillips Superback contribution now knows where to go. <laughs> well, you, you also float the idea, though, that there are tech-focused liberals in the Valley. There mm-hmm. are also mischief-making contrarians uh, who Definitely. don't like Joe Biden. And, you know, is there a chance that like Chamath or like David Sachs, you know, or anyone else in their, you know, tech VC orbit could funnel some money into the super PAC. I mean, that seems mm-hmm. possible, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Dean Phillips was on the all in podcast the other week, which is the, uh, you know, the, the Bible for the, for the kind of the archetype, uh, tech person you're, you're, you're thinking of, um, <laughs> you know, Phillips went to some poker game. I, I report in the story uh, a couple weeks ago with a bunch of tech people, you know, that are kind of leaning right. And look, I mean, there, there are tech people who are definitely not 
Democrats who were giving money to RFK when he was, right. you know, running as Democratic presidential candidate. So this is this is going to be a combination of kind of mischief making and uh, and and real support. But um, clearly, uh, whether or not it's mischief making or, or real support, what these people share in common is they're not excited about Joe Biden, and then the money flows flows downstream from there. They aren't alone. There are a lot of people out there, Teddy, who aren't excited about Joe Biden. Thanks for joining me, buddy. You bet. When we come back, Eric Gardner's here to discuss Trump on trial for election interference. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Puck's resident legal guru, Eric Gardner. Good seeing you, Eric. Good seeing you, too. So I wanted to have you back on for a update on the Trump trial in D.C. This is the one for attempting to overturn the 2020 election, uh, being led by special counsel Jack Smith, because there's been a couple major updates and, and developments in this case. But first of all, this trial is actually coming up really soon. Um, I, I actually sort of lost track of the timing, but it's currently scheduled to begin on March 4th, which is the day before Super Tuesday voting. Eric, were you surprised at all uh, by how quickly this case has moved or the the fact that Trump's lawyers haven't been successful in getting it delayed at all? Well, uh, you know, I think that's been the game from the very beginning to get this trial in. And really, early spring makes the most sense. Uh, once you get a little later in the year, we're talking about, you know, we're full in election season. Uh, and any earlier than that, and it's just too close to uh, when the indictment came originally. So this was always the sweet spot. And it's not a surprise that we see not one, but two trials scheduled for that March, uh, the other one being the one in New York over the whole Stormy Daniels hush payments. Uh, so oh my God, I'd forgotten all about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, there, there's four cases. That's right. The New York one is in March as well. Yeah, and, and the funny thing about that case is the New York judge has kept it on the calendar just in case uh, Trump is successful in moving the, the D.C. Uh, case, uh, delaying it. Uh, the, the New York's judge is, you know, well, I'm not going to move it until I'm, I'm absolutely certain that, that, that the, the other trial is going forward. So, you know, it's very rare to see uh, some defendant uh, be scheduled for two trials in, the, in a single month, but here we are. Well, the, the Trump legal team did try to get the D.C. case delayed. I mean, just recently, um, the judge in that case, Tanya Chutkin, she rejected Trump's claim that he had, quote, absolute immunity from election interference because this was actions that he took while he was in office. The former president appealed that decision to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for uh, D.C., and then on Monday, this is, the, this is the big development in the case, Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to basically expedite a ruling on that claim that he is immune. They said, they, look, if, if, if you're going to make that claim, like let's get to the bottom of it right now. So they, they want the high court to weigh in on this. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're going to look at it. And they gave Trump's legal team until December 20 to file the response. So they've got about a, a week or so to come up with some kind of reason why he is, in fact, immune. Eric, do you think there's any chance that the Supreme Court buys that argument, uh, it, it seems like a, a pretty radical claim. 
Right. Just first of all, to be clear, the the Supreme Court hasn't uh, 100% taken up the case yet. Right now, they are just considering taking up the the case, but they have granted okay. a motion to expedite, and they they they've ordered uh, Trump's you know legal team to basically you know put forward their position why they shouldn't take up this case right now. Uh, so we should have a decision about that pretty quickly. It takes four justices for uh, the Supreme Court to grant certiorari and take a case. And maybe that that could be the you know the biggest X factor here, whether or not they take the case, rather than whether Trump's going to win, because you know Trump's arguments are pretty out there, legally speaking. Uh, he, he's basically making two arguments. One is that he can't be prosecuted for official acts in office; that the sole remedy for that is impeachment. And second of all, because he went through impeachment and wasn't convicted, to try him now would be a violation of his due process rights. It'd be double jeopardy. The judge rejected that. Trump was going to try to make an appeal at the D.C. Circuit. I don't know whether he would sincerely thought that it would win or whether it was just a delay tactic. But uh, Jack Smith has, has decided to play chess here and, you know, just move it along to the Supreme Court. And yeah, I, I think it's very, uh, very, very, very unlikely that Trump would win this case. The Supreme Court has already taken up immunity for the president in other contexts, most particularly in the context of whether a president is immune from subpoenas from civil litigants and has ruled uh, basically that the you know the president doesn't have immunity in that context and what's interesting in that case is that you know there was a question that that came up about you know whether or not the president would be immune from prosecution after leaving office. And it was the opinion of Trump's legal team at that point when they were trying to push their their immunity that there was no immunity post leaving office. So they've kind of like reversed their stance right now. And it's, it's a very long shot. Like I said, I think that the biggest uh, mystery really is whether or not the Supreme Court takes this case because it's so quick. It's lightning fast. Usually, uh, Supreme Court would wait for the D.C. Circuit to make a ruling before jumping on board. And Jack Smith points as precedent to this, the, the Watergate stuff, you know, where, where basically it, it leapfrogged the, the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and Jack Smith hopes for something similar here. Well, what do you think is going to happen, Eric? I mean, is there, is there any chance that this Supreme Court decides, hey, we're, let's, we're going to let this play out through the D.C. appeals court first, and that as a consequence, this whole thing gets delayed and, and we miss the March 4th trial start date? I think it's possible, though I think it's more likely that they will take up this case, that they will hold a hearing maybe next month over it, and that they will have a ruling uh, early next year. So to keep the trial on track for March. I don't think that that Trump will will win this. The question is, did he expect this at all? I mean, was this going to be his his big shot delay? I think that there might be other ways that he hoped to have appealed the case and delay uh, the case. I'm not necessarily sure that immunity was was going to be his big stick in the mud here, Um, but it's turned out that way. And so, you know, I think that that the Supreme Court's going to weigh weigh this. It's going to be a you know a big ruling, a big hearing, and I f- find it very unlikely Trump's going to win win this. The question is, what happens between the time when 
the Supreme Court comes down with a ruling and the start of the trial date. Is there any other sort of arrows in, in Trump's quiver to, to delay the process? Well, say the trial does begin on schedule, March 4th. How long do you expect the trial would actually go on for? And when do you think we could be looking at a verdict or looking at sentencing? Because each of these dates and what happens on them could have a huge, huge impact on the Republican primary, obviously. I mean, Trump's ahead by a lot right now. I mean, he has this sort of indomitable lead in Iowa and New Hampshire and all the places he needs to win. But maybe voters have a change of heart when this becomes more real for them, when it seems like there is a possibility that the party's nominee could actually be facing time in jail, that that causes a real shift at the last second, that we see a surge for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. Yes, I would expect that the trial would last all through the month of March, and there'd be a verdict at the end of it. There's a jury um, here, so the jury would uh, deliberate. I mean, it's possible that if the jurors didn't agree, there could be a hung jury, and, and then that would raise all sorts of other he- headaches. But I'd expect there to be a verdict at the end of it. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, if just based on you know what I've seen from polls, there is you know a sizable amount of people who say that a conviction would matter uh, in their deliberations to them. I think it would you know inject a lot of uncertainty. Uh, about the the entire situation. Now, what sort of penalty Trump w- would face is is another like huge question. Whether he'd face jail time, whether it'd be home confinement, whether there'd be a delay for after the election, whether there'd be the other trials going forward at that at that same time. I think you know there's lots of different questions going forward. It would certainly raise a lot of chaos in uh, the Republican field. I, I think that, you know, a sizable amount of electors might might start wondering whether they should, you know, bring forward different different candidates. Buckle up, folks. I, I think things are going to get very crazy in the next few months. Totally. I, I really don't think it's sunk in on some level that this is a guy who's facing 93 charges. I mean, that's, that's a number that Democrats throw around a lot. But I think that um, a lot of Republican voters just for one reason or another have not truly engaged with. But Eric, l- last question for you. Obviously, you know, we talked about the Trump legal team would like to delay all of these trials, all four of them as much as possible until after the 2024 election, even better. Because in at least two of those cases, this is the um, election interference trial and the classified documents case in Florida, those are cases where Trump, if he were president, could presumably order his attorney general to drop those charges if they were still going on by the time he's back in power. But what happens to the local cases in Georgia and New York? Again, this is just sort of with a thought experiment that Trump is elected again. Would he have power to stop those cases? Or or is there any kind of legal precedent that says that he couldn't be prosecuted while he's president? Yeah. So, you know, we're now getting into another tricky area. Uh, He doesn't have unilateral power to stop those state cases, but there is, you know, good arguments to be made under the supremacy clause that the state prosecutions couldn't go forward. I expect that this would be yet another issue that might go to the Supreme Court. Um, So I don't know. I'd feel very doubtful that these state prosecutions would go forward while Trump was in office. So I think that if he wins the election, it very well may, may be that he, he escapes uh, prosecution for many, many years and maybe altogether. Well, we're, we're, we're truly in unprecedented territory here, Eric, but uh, I, I appreciate you trying to game out how all this might play out. And um, we'll see what happens. We're getting closer and closer to that March 4th date. If that trial is not delayed, we will soon have the remarkable scene of a former president running for president again on trial for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Eric, thanks as always. 
my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.